Welcome to Buildings and Beyond. The podcast that explores how we can create a more sustainable built environment. By focusing on efficiency, accessibility, and health. Hello, Dylan Martello here, stepping in to guest host for today's episode. On today's episode, we're talking about O&M, or operations and maintenance, and training for building staff and building residents on how to get the most out of their buildings. On this episode, I'm joined by two colleagues of mine at SWA, Heather Nolan and Luis Aragon. Heather is a building systems director and works almost exclusively on O&M and training programs for the buildings that she works on and the staff and residents that she works with. Luis is on our commissioning team and works frequently with building operators and maintenance staff to ensure that their systems are commissioned properly and running effectively. Luis is also multilingual and speaks English and Spanish fluently. We'll talk about how that plays a role in his day-to-day work with building operations staff. On this episode, Heather will also get into the new SWA Academy platform that is now live at swa-academy.com. This is a fully online learning platform that guides building practitioners through the quickly evolving topics of building science and accessibility. Learning modules on the platform range from building efficiency and heat pump technology to accessibility, universal design, building electrification, health and indoor air quality, and of course, operations and maintenance, which we'll talk about today. Again, visit swa-academy.com to learn more. And lastly, I'd like to announce that we're excited again this year for the Passive House Network Conference coming up this fall. The conference kicks off with a fully online day on September 28th and two days in person in Denver on October 4th and 5th. Throughout the conference, you'll see great presentations from Passive House designers and builders and building owners, building operators on really the latest and greatest with high performance buildings. I have the pleasure of presenting on two topics this year, package terminal heat pumps and Passive House design for multifamily buildings out west. In addition, you'll be able to go on building tours and join workshops to really learn about the nitty gritty details of Passive House buildings. To learn more and register, visit phnconference.org. I hope to see you there. Yeah, so we're here, um, here with Luis Aragon and Heather Nolan from SWA. So Heather, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I will start with, I've been at SWA for 10 years and soon to be 11. Um, I am deeply involved in our operations and maintenance training program. I was thinking about this, and I was involved in writing the first proposals for this work. And I'd say I've been like driving the bus, but also like tweaking it and repairing it, you know, and building it kind of like as it's been going on for the past um, nearly five years. Um, so it's been fun to really like see this program evolve and become meaningful, you know, internally here and with our all of our building staff participants and all of our properties that we're working with as well. Awesome, and Luis. Yeah, so I've been at SWA for three years now, uh, five years in the industry. My background is mostly new construction commissioning, and I've been involved in this uh, O&M training uh, program for maybe a year and a half at this point. Started initially just like as, a, as an adjunct instructor to fill in when, when some trainings needed a trainer. And in the past maybe three, four months, I've been more active, uh, not only delivering more trainings, but also like a little bit of curriculum development, and also, um, I guess my my superpower is my second language, Spanish. <laughs> so assisting a lot on the on the translation side of things for for the material that we have, 
and working uh, with a, a translator that uh, that does the translations. Nice, awesome. So, Luis, I'm going to kick it back to you just to start off. As a rough percentage, maybe or you know hours per week, how much time do you think you spend on either like O and M or operations and maintenance training, or just working to really educate? staff and residents or whatever that might be? I'd say that nowadays is perhaps 30 to 40% of my week time is uh, devoted to, uh, on average, devoted to uh, on-em training related tasks. And yeah, that could be just deli- delivering the training themselves or 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 maybe modifying slides or, or figuring out some translation open questions that we may have. Mm. Or just like since my background and my 60-70% of the time is new construction commissioning, is talking with a, a building operators that are getting handed over a brand new building and they still are unclear on how the building needs to work. That's the other part of the O&M training scope that I engage in. Nice. And then your other portion is commissioning of systems and working with HVAC and right. all that stuff. Yeah. yeah, I mean, design reviews, submittal reviews, uh, working with BMS systems, try to improve uh, usability. Uh, I mean, for new construction things, something that is brand new, um, from what I've learned, I, I, I strive to be able to provide the client, the, the building operator, something that is maintainable, that it makes sense. Uh, like nowadays, buildings uh, can have very complex systems in place, right. and yeah, need, my goal is when I talk to building supers, like try to simplify those complex concepts as much as possible, uh, so that their daily tasks can become less of a, a burden and less of a hustle. Nice, nice. And Heather, I'm going to kick it back to you as a percentage or hours of typical work week, how much How much do you think you spend on O&M and trainings? It's nearly all dedicated to <laughs> O&M and training. Yeah. Nice. Um, I'll carve out, you know, some, some time seasonally to work on benchmarking and talk to people about how to understand their benchmarking information and how that's kind of translated. You know, what do those numbers mean? Is this high? Is it low? How does it compare to my peers? Is this where I expected to be if it's a new construction building? If it's an, you know, 75-year-old existing building? This is where I am. You know, can I get my numbers to be any better? How does this relate to my letter ratings? How does this relate to my carbon emissions for 97? So a lot of time, you know, helping clients understand where they are, what those numbers mean, and where they can go nice. as far as like improving energy efficiency. Yeah. So so you're alluding to in particular, New York City has laws that require buildings to report energy use and then coming in here in the in the next couple of years, carbon emissions. And, you know, currently energy use on buildings, uh, I believe over 25,000 square, square feet is represented as a letter grade for existing buildings. And it's now also going to sort of turn into potential fines if you're exceeding a carbon limit. So I think what's interesting here, maybe we can start off, Heather, just kind of talking about how existing buildings are dealing with prior practices and, and the way it's been operating over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 plus years and how it's going to adapt to these these laws versus versus new construction. But maybe just if you can kind of speak to that difference and, and how existing buildings are kind of dealing with that. 
Yeah, um, it's been a real game changer for existing buildings. So, you know, they were operating, you know, their business as usual. I don't want to speak for, you know, the clients, but what we were perceiving is they're operating their buildings kind of looking at energy spent. You know, was it a good year? Was it a bad year? Are we spending a lot on energy, on our utility bills specifically? What does that look like? And then with, you know, the advancements in benchmarking, looking at their 12 months of energy usage, having that energy usage translate to a letter grade. That was, you know, bringing some transparency to energy usage and putting it on a scale that made sense to folks. You know, is this building a D? Is it mm. an A? You know, and how does that translate to energy usage? Um, you know, when talking to building staff, some people would really take that personally. You know, what does this reflect at the building? And really, it reflects on utility bills and energy usage. It doesn't reflect on how many complaint calls for lack of heating or underheating, overheating, you know, shower water temperature. And those are, you know, kind of some metrics that building staff grade themselves on. You know, mm. they're looking at, oh, the residents are very happy here. You know, why is this building getting a D or a C letter grade? So it's a lot on, you know, educating the market and talking to them about that side of things so that supers and building staff understand, all right, if you, you know, have to, something happens and you have to put the boiler in manual. You know, what does that mean? If you're changing temperature set points and increasing the temperature in the building, and leave it that way for a period of time. What does that translate into for energy usage? And really like connecting the dots with activities that they're doing in the building and how that affects utility usage. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, Local on 97 with the carbon targets just right. adds another layer on. So people were kind of understanding, all right, here's my letter grades, but now carbon emissions, you know, what are carbon emissions? How are you transferring my utility bills? into certain energy usage metrics and now translating it into carbon. Nice. So it sounds like supers really take pride <laughs> in this, you know, idea of the building operating well and not getting complaints, which I think makes sense. Um, I'm curious how, you know, as you're alluding to the energy usage and, and how that's rated and, and scaled and, and with local on 97 now carbon emissions, do you think that pride will translate or, or how do you think, how do you envision sort of supers reacting to energy use like if energy use in a building is high what what's what's maybe their next steps or who do they talk to to help uh, address that be, be, sorry before that something to chime in from what heather mentioned uh like a super like hey my building is not a d because my tenants are happy i guess a parallel from personal experience the building where i live it's a one pipe steam mm. we have an a uh <laughs> But sometimes I talk to my neighbors, especially in the winter, and they have massive complaints of overheating. So it definitely sounds like the kind of building that may be inefficient. Right. Uh, so there's there's that other side, like, hey, my tenants never complain. Why do I have a D in my building? We have an A, and there's plenty of tenants complaining. So it's, exactly. it's, it's, yeah. it's a very um, long shade of gray of like, wait, <laughs> what does the grade really represent? Mm -hmm. Yeah, or what if a building doesn't have cooling, you know? Exactly. And comfort-wise... It's lacking in the summer because it doesn't have cooling. But energy use-wise, maybe it's actually not using as much, especially in the summer. So right. it's it's a loaded topic, and it's not easy to solve. It sounds like. Yeah, I think we probably have a couple camps. You know, you'll have the the folks who'll just say, "Oh, it's another layer of city legislation." You know, is right. this going to happen, or what is the city doing now, and how much is this going to cost me? You know, so you have those folks, of course. Well, that'll happen with anything, and then you have the other camp that says. All right, you know, this is the natural progression of greener, greater buildings. You know, this is where the city is going to reach its larger goals. 
how are we going to fit into that? You know, maybe their organization is also like-minded and it fits in with the company mission and their own individual goals um, for the property or for the owner, third-party manager. Um, And so we're talking uh, with them about how the building staff are really like the eyes and ears of the building. You know, they Mm. know what piece of equipment they've been band-aiding together for a couple of years, you know, what is about to go, what is working well, um, and kind of starting those conversations to connect the people together. So, you know, does this new technology make sense to this building? How would that change operations? What piece of equipment is on its way out, you know? So if we need a a five-year replacement time period for what piece of equipment, what are we going to replace it with? Maybe it's not replace in kind as it has been for a number of years, but what is that next step level piece of equipment? And it might be a completely different technology that the building staff is not familiar with. It might involve fuel switching too. So these are, you know, big conversations to have because of the large capital costs, the large construction timeframe and operational changes. But it has been a nice conversation starter to connect the dots between, you know, senior management and building staff. Right. In terms of the the tools to be able to train and educate staff, do you find that, like, I, I th- imagine that there's many different ways to actually train staff, whether that's a manual that's, you know, is a printed out manual. Is it a series of QR codes that staff can scan on a piece of equipment? Is it an online training module? Is it physically being on site and walking through staff on how to use equipment or deal with certain challenges? Are, are there any mediums or, or means of training that you find to be the most effective, or is it more or less just kind of dependent on the situation? Uh, my ideal training scenario would be to always be able to do it not only in person, but do like building tours so that instead of showing slide decks of what the equipment looks like, go through a building with the building staff and showing them exactly what is each component and and, and talking about it and answering questions on the spot. At least based on my learning style, that would be, if I was learning something, I would absorb the most like that. And then after that, like having those QR codes available at a piece of equipment would be a good like refresher or entry intro option for somebody who comes afterwards. And also whatever training happens in person ideally should also be recorded. And like that's something mm, that right, we right. try to push for a new construction when we have like, I mean, that varies from scope to scope, but like we like to see that like the, the construction documents, the specs, they say like training has to be recorded. Mm, interesting. And, 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 and like we, want, we like to like be able to push like, please be sure that you're recording this because I mean, the building's going to be here for 50 plus years and who knows how many building supers there, there's going to be. And having right. this information available in a digital form for eons to come uh, can be very, very beneficial. Yeah. Are there any similar or different experiences? No, you know, I agree with that. Um, with our program, you know, we've offered kind of 
everything, you know, what makes sense for each client, you know, what is their end goal, yeah. how much time do they have for the program. Uh, we found it's best to kind of spread out the training, mm. you know, really over a year. You know, this isn't like a 30-hour course done in the shortest <laughs> time frame, you know, when we all try to complete OSHA as yeah, fast OSHA as possible. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like, let's just spread it out when the knowledge is important to you, kind of right, this like right. just-in-time idea. So, you know, gearing up in the fall, that's when we want to be talking about heating systems, you know, talking about generation, mm. talking about boiler plants, and talking about distribution systems. And let's, you know, give that topic its time, let's talk about it in the fall, going into the winter, but then we cut it off like towards the mid, you know, end of winter. We don't want to be starting a big topic about boilers in March when they're not going to be maintaining that distribution system for much longer. And then, you know, going into the spring, that's our like peak season for talking about cooling towers, chillers, Mm -hmm. you know, really focusing on that content. And then we have, you know, the content that's good to talk about any time of the year, you know, our domestic hot water, our lighting, (laughs) you know, air sealing. Um, So if we have that you know, kind of like seasonal, regular involvement with folks, then they're not kind of overwhelmed with too many hours of training all at once, but they see us for a couple of hours every quarter. And then over the course of the year, they've completed all the content in, you know, various forms. If it's, you know, classroom training, Field training, field training we call, it's kind of like a parade where we'll like start at the roof, talk about roof fans, walk down the, you know, the corridors or the stairwells together, pause, talk about lighting. You really like hands-on talk about all the piece of equipment as you walk through the building. And then we have a couple of other aspects of the training program that we integrate to, like digitizing the content. As Luis was saying, you know, we have our... um, Stephen Winter Associates has an online learning system called SWAT Academy, so we digitize the content there. It mm-hmm. makes a great leave behind because um, one of the things that we were really learning with talking to these folks is, you know, what's the learning style? You know, just like with right. any learner. And for some of the building staff that we were interacting with the fields, they haven't been in a classroom setting in a number of years, you know, and they're not used to taking notes or this or that. So, you know, what is a good leap behind? And maybe a good leap behind isn't the 50-page manuals that maybe I used to give out, and I don't know how many times they were read, um, but what is another? Is it digital links? Is it rounding checklist? You know, we're, we're really playing with how do we tell the content in a couple different ways to touch different learning styles and to help make that content sticky. Nice. And if you have you seen good engagement in SWA Academy and the online platform that that offers uh, to date? It's growing. It's okay. a newer feature to our training program, so we're really excited about it. Okay. Um, what's nice is through developing that, you know, where are you going to record? What kind of content are you going to put on there? We're recording it in the field with mm. our building staff that's participating in our training programs. Nice. And they're really excited about it. You know, they love having their boiler rooms, you know, <laughs> featured in those videos, um, things along those lines. So we're getting, you know, positive feedback and encouragement there. Um, and we're ramping up kind of our participation and our views on our learning management system. But yeah, we're really excited about that opportunity for a leap behind, too. Nice. nice. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to the sort of evolution of developing this training? And, and, and is it something that you found is sort of uh, something that you do a lot of research on, you read up on, and, and kind of develop training? Or is it, is it like a two-way street sort of thing where you're getting feedback from operators? And, and how does that usually unfold? Yeah, I think it, it's all of the above, but leans heavier on feedback. 
Okay. Um, so it was in my early days at Stephen Winter, like 10 years ago. I was doing an energy audit, and I was photographing everything in the building as auditors do on a real digital camera. And <laughs> at the end, the super told me that I missed something. And I was like, oh, mm. you know, in my mind, I was like, I bet he has a CHP unit, a combined heat and power. It was kind of new 10 years ago. People like threw him in the corner of a garage or a random room. And I was thinking to myself, all right, what do you have? Like, show me what you got. And yeah. he was like, it's me. You didn't take a picture of me. I am like the most important thing at this building. <laughs> and it was this like funny interaction. Then he posed for me and I still have a picture of him holding a light bulb. Um, <laughs> and I use it frequently in, in like presentations when we talk about training um, because He's right. And we have so many amazing conversations with building staff. Um, anytime we're going out and auditing buildings, I feel like we're playing the 20-question game. I'm learning from right. them all these things about how they operate the building and what works and what doesn't work and what do they wish they had funding for. If they've been asking for this and nobody's been giving it to them, let me put that in my report for you. You know, it's really asking all these questions. And sometimes we have these amazing conversations where super kind of feels like they're sizing me up and they'll be like, all right, it seems like you do know what you're talking about. So I'm going to ask you this question. And they like will ask a next level question because they've established, all right, you know, this person came in and, and shows what they know here and will help them troubleshoot something that's been kind of on their list for a while. Um, it all depends on the, the super you meet and how talkative they are that day and maybe right. how talkative you are, but it's definitely this big feedback loop. Um, and it's nice pairing. So Stephen Winter, you know, Steve Winter Associates, <laughs> um, has told me a couple times of his logic of one plus one is three. And I think about that in these like conversations and relationships with supers. Sure, the building staff, in some cases, they point out that they've been operating this boiler for longer than I've been alive. Um, and they right. have a lot of knowledge in this area and how to operate that building. And then I can come in and pair it with that energy efficiency side of things. And it's really with that that one plus one is three that we can together optimize how the building is right. operating to really create the change, to help reduce energy usage, to you know reduce repairs, to upgrade the equipment instead of replace in kind. And that feedback and that communication with building staff is really what we're looking for. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny and interesting to see how... Uh, Building staff, or in, in this case, uh, example I can provide is uh, doing a video to talk about um, sort of passive house principles at one of our uh, passive house projects in Harlem. And one of the uh, folks on the contractor side, the one of the envelope contractors, was there and helping with the filming process. And we're showing, you know, all these passive house details and all this stuff. And then, you know, as soon as we wrap up, every time I go on site, now he's like asking, you know, when is the Oscar going to get awarded and, you know, when can we do the next video? So it's like, it's funny to see mm -hmm. <laughs> like staff like really like and engage in this stuff. And I'm sure there's cases where people don't want to be filmed, but, um, but I think, you know, the more you can engage staff and, and have them take pride in not only the design and, and, and the build quality of it, but also the operational quality of it. Nice. So let's shift real quick to new construction, because I know we've talked a lot about existing buildings and a lot of this does apply to both. But Heather, what would you say is sort of maybe a big distinction between what O&M and training might look like with a project that goes through design and, you know, is maybe designed to this new standard, this new energy code? Maybe there's new systems. We have a lot of talk about all electric buildings now in New York City. So um, there's certainly new technological advancements that O&M staff have to catch up with. So how does how is that different in new construction versus existing? 
You know, definitely the equipment for sure. But I think, you know, when we're talking to portfolios, one of the bigger drivers is how the conversation about their interest in training goes as a whole. So depending on the developer or manager, if they've just invested in this building and they've gone through passive house or certain lead criteria, they might have a different level of interest in making sure that building achieves that you know, sure, they've achieved the status and they got the piece of paper, you know, when construction was complete, but they're going to be looking at the utility bills on day two mm-hmm. and really watching, you know, all right, how has energy usage really ramped up through through lease up, through occupancy? Are we at our level steady state for energy usage at the building? Is it performing as designed? You know, and so depending on how engaged that developer is, they'll really be looking and asking those questions. And so there, we have a bit more of an opportunity to really focus on the operations and maintenance side and the training. Um, It is also worth noting that I think it can be pretty overwhelming if it's a new (laughs) construction building and you're receiving just a like crash course in the trainings from all of the different subs and all of the teams are giving this building, the poor building staff, this training just like all at once. Um, It's a lot to take in. And then who do you ask a question of on day two? Um, So it's a good opportunity to really pace it out and lay out a training and an integrated operations and maintenance program so that we can check up on that building in a couple of months and see how it's doing. Yeah, and and Luis, on your side, I mean, particularly with respect to systems, I mean, Heather, you just mentioned how these supers are getting a new building with, in a lot of cases, a lot of new technology, like energy recovery ventilators for your outdoor air in the building. Luis, from your end, you know, working specifically on the HVAC systems, MEP systems side, are there certain pain points <laughs> that you would highlight with certain systems or equipment types? Yes, um, <laughs> since you mentioned the energy recovery ventilators, um, okay. a, a lot of passive house buildings that we work on, uh, the they, design intent is to have a, an ERV in the rooftop, but it's uh, connected to a heat pump system. Mm. And okay. yep. heat pump systems themselves are not necessarily new technology. And ERVs, also not exactly new technology, but in this case, it's not, it's not the same manufacturer for both systems. So if something is not put together in a factory setting, if wiring, deep switches, adjustments, and all that, if that's not put together in a, in a factory and it's supposed to happen on site, a lot of things can be missed. If the system is not working correctly, uh, tenants may complain of either being too hot or too cold, right. and that drives then the O&M staff to go to the unit controller and change the set point drastically, uh, which it ends up causing the unit to run inefficiently. Uh, it wasn't set up correctly from the beginning, and nobody really knew about it. Uh, but the old supers are dealing with so many things every single day uh, that when there's a, that type of complaint, like either too hot or too cold, especially in passive house buildings that have such such tight envelopes, right. they're going to try to get through those solutions as quickly as possible. So real, real quick, just to clarify, so you're talking about if you have like a energy recovery ventilator, which is bringing outdoor air from your uh, from the outdoor environment and exhausting air from the inside, recovering that heat um, for the outdoor air, but you still need to heat or cool that air somewhat to right. make it sure it's comfortable for... Yeah. Occupants. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the different, uh, like some engineers design passive house uh, buildings with a, with an ERV that doesn't have the heat pump coil, but some do. Some do. Right. And uh, and yeah, it's for that extra heating or the dehumidification. Right. So like to connect a little bit with what Heather mentioned earlier of like putting together an O and M manual that will be however many hundred pages long. 
and, and whatnot. So we also put together a preliminary and a final commission report that, well, it's an energy code requirement, but it's also something that can be very helpful for property management and for the, for the building operator. Right. But uh, similar to an O&M manual, um, the preliminary commission report is something that needs to be shown to the, to the property manager and, and, the, and the building super ideally as well, so that they are aware, like, listen, throughout construction, we called out these 500 issues, right? But right. you probably don't need to look at these 500 issues. We, there are these other issues that you should keep in the back of your head because in the future, you may have some issues with uh, your ERV. And this issue might help you, might give you some context of who you need to call or what you need to look at. Um, and there's also like key sections of a preliminary commission report, which are the functional test plans. And this is something that I, I, I say every property management company should have something like this. It's like, like an, on, an ongoing commissioning plans, a continuous commissioning of the properties. This is the functional test plan that we use for, for your system. This is something that you can use, that your staff can use to verify whether your system is performing the way that it's supposed to or not. Right, right. Now, I know, uh, you know, fairly recently, we've, last week, um, you know, we're recording this in, in uh, early June, and last week was a big uh, week in terms of outdoor air quality being the worst it's ever been in New York City and the worst in the world. Uh, and that got a lot of people, I think, talking about filters, which I would say is probably one of the most basic O&M items, but maybe gets overlooked. Um, so filters just being, you know, why it could be a couple things, but, you know, one example would be if you have an energy recovery ventilator that's bringing outdoor air into your building, you want that air filtered at a minimum level before it's being delivered to the space. Or if you have a heat pump or a heating unit in your apartment, fan coil, um, that's circulating air within the apartment, you still want to filter that uh, because there's certain pollutants in the space. How How is like something as simple as filter changes <laughs> in our eyes? How, how do you see that playing out? Is that something that uh, you find is is not really an issue or, or is an issue? Um, it is an issue. Yeah. It's okay. a big issue. Um, I, in my experience is mostly with our existing buildings. So, you know, our, our older stock. So, you know, they have just less equipment that utilizes filters. Right. And so because it's not the primary heat source that you're working with, then it kind of, you know, falls down on the list. You mm. know, they're really concerned with the boiler operation. You know, is that steam boiler going? How, right. you know, looking at steam traps, things like that. Um, then they're like, oh, wait, yeah, we have a community room that has an air handler with filters. <laughs> or we did just get a new ERV. It's that new thing on the roof. You know, what does it do again? And right. it just, yeah, it kind of falls down on the priority list because it might not be the main heat source of the building or leading to the most resident complaints or occupant complaints. And so we've definitely seen it, you know, fall down on the list and people will say, I didn't even know there was a filter in that unit. You know, like yeah. one of my favorite stories is I was on a roof with someone showing them how to change the filters in the ERV and this unit had two stacked in series. So you could okay. easily change out one. And they were like, yeah, I got that. Change that out. Every three months, I look at it. And I'm like, yeah, but there's another one in there. You had to like reach your arm in like all the way to my armpit, like all the way wow. deep, and pull out two kind of in series. And he was like, yeah, I didn't know there was one back there. <sighs> you know, building supers get pulled in a million directions, you know, responding to tenants and occupants and keeping the equipment going. And if it's a filter for a piece of equipment that's not the dominant thing that they're checking on and maintaining all the time, then um, we've definitely seen it fall down on the list. 
Um, very interesting. All right. So before we move on, I, I just want to kind of, you know, think about how do we sort of sustain the training? What, what are, I think, tools that we think can help get a building beyond not just the six-month period or the one-year period even, but maybe have a plan for 10, 15, 20-plus years over the lifespan of this equipment? Um, and, and maybe what role does entities like government or agencies that can help facilitate that role um, because you know they might not have a consultant on board after three years of the building's operation, it might be a little different. So how does, how does that usually play out? Right now, New York is in a good position because NYSERDA has a workforce development training program um, where they're, you know, it's essentially a grant, but there's a significant cost share that comes mostly from in-kind contributions from building staff participating in this training. But it's a great way to start a training program, either new construction or existing buildings. And part of NYSERDA's mission with this training program is that it's not one and done, but they're really okay. looking to create a change in how properties are maintained and how you know, um, developers, their property managers are really operating and how they look at hiring, retaining, promoting staff within their buildings. And in some cases, people are looking at, you know, kind of round robins of the staff, gathering all the supers in Brooklyn together or in the Bronx together, you know, quarterly and kind of just doing a little refresher training on heating. You know, all right, who's having these problems? Mm. Introducing them to their peers. So maybe there's a steam guru a couple blocks away that works <laughs> for your same management agency that you didn't know. You know, can we create right. these, these networks? Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so a combination of what can be done internally at organizations and then how can we support people kind of remotely and from afar too. And is that through our videos or through, you know, digitized checklists to kind of remind people of the tasks that they're doing and the frequency to do those tasks too. Nice. And and that nice sort of program is called what specifically? 3715 is the pawn number for that. It's okay. their workforce development training program. Okay. Um, as of early June, I think the solicitation is currently closed, but they plan on reopening nice. that program. So that's a nice way to um, help get some training paid for and have a nice structured framework too, so that you know you're you know working with NYSERDA, that they're helping to pair you with organizations that have uh, you know a nice track record with training and that they are subject matter experts. Um, but there's a lot of areas um, for buildings to interact with trainings too. I do want to mention, you know, 32BJ and other unions, you know, do have training programs where, okay. you know, union staff should definitely participate in those where applicable. Nice. Well, we'll definitely provide links to those in the show notes. So if, uh, if you're listening, you can hopefully jump over to those resources that we mentioned and uh, yeah, help sustain the training. Now, I want to kind of shift gears a bit here to talk a bit about something as simple as language in O&M and training. And, and it, you know, it applies not only to just the operation of the building, it certainly applies to construction. And, and especially in a market like New York City, where you have a lot of different folks on the construction and operation staff that are coming from different parts of the world, you know, not everyone might speak English at all or fluent English, certainly. So, um, Luis, I really want to get your perspective on this. So you're you're a uh, uh, two languages, right? English and Spanish. Officially, yeah. Officially, okay. Maybe any other unofficially or German, Italian, and a little bit of French. Wow. Okay. That's that's 
I, I'm jealous, <laughs> I must say. Yeah, I, I love languages. So I, I learned a bunch of them, a handful of them, just because, uh, uh, I mean, Italian, uh, a friend that I had, German, I used to had the target of like moving to Germany before getting my job in New York. And French, uh, uh, before my first trip to France, my French friend advised that I learn some basic French so that I wouldn't be that obnoxious tourist that enters the restaurant in France. Like, excuse me, do you have a table for two? They're probably not, they're not going to, they appreciate if you chop the French than if you try to do the English. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. So, uh, but I yeah, for officially for, 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 for the role, for the, for, um, my daily life in New York, English and Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, for, for construction and O&M. Right. Yeah, definitely very helpful. I mean, there, there's been a number of times where I'll, I've been on site with a, a colleagues and they're trying to communicate with somebody, something as it was like, no, I need that ladder. And the other person is responding in Spanish saying <laughs> that they need the ladder for 10 minutes. But my colleague doesn't understand. And they're like, no, 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 I need no. the ladder. Yeah, it's only ten. No, I need the ladder, so I have to like chime in, like, in, to say in Spanish, "We need the ladder." Like, so it <laughs> will return it something as, as simple as, as that, <laughs> right? And then the more complex things, such as talking to a building super, whether it is new construction or, or existing buildings, about uh, issues that you're having with your boiler, or just an introduction to to your boiler system, uh, what to look for in pumps and. And yeah, so like, I mean, New York City, very diverse, right? And um, absolutely, it's a melting pot. It's a melting pot. And, and a, a lot of folks, anybody who's a Spanish speaker from Latin America, typically our countries, we don't have the, 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 the heating needs that we have in New York. So a steam boiler, a hydraulic boiler for heating and cooling, it's, uh, it's not really a common thing. So some people may be right, exposed right. to those systems for the first time here. And they learn some things in English and in Spanish. And, and like the conversations end up having a version of Spanglish. Like we'll right. have a whole, a whole sentence in Spanish and one of the words will be boiler. Because <laughs> unless you know how to say caldera, you're most likely going to say boiler because that's how you refer to it every time. Right, so a Spanish-speaking individual from Mexico might not have an experience with a boiler right. because they don't have a boiler heated <laughs> system. Right, they don't have a heating load as, right. as much as we do here. So right. yeah, so where <laughs> there's probably new technologies that they're having to oh absolutely piece this language with absolutely. I mean, something that I struggle with sometimes, like with the training, is it's uh, uh, the, the the term for an ERV. Uh, right. I, I'm not sure how common the ERVs are in Latin America. I, I, I know I don't think I've ever saw one or heard of one. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Spain is farther up north, so maybe Spain has some areas where they do have the the heating loads uh, or similar heating loads to what we see here. Uh, but the use of ERVs, no, not sure. And so, like when when I'm delivering a training, and I get to that in Spanish, and I get to that section about ERVs. I err on the side of saying both names, the name in Spanish, and, and they say, like, by the way, this is called like that in English. Got because if, if I talk for two hours and, and, and I say the name in Spanish for boiler, caldera, and I just talk about caldera, 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 caldera people are going to be like, so what was the training about? Like he kept showing pictures of boilers, but he boilers. never said the word boiler. So what, what am I looking? You didn't Where's mention the boiler once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So 
there's like a a, a, a a balance to find. Um, mm. and, and like when I'm delivering the trainings, I typically like to ask, when I'm delivering the trainings in Spanish, I like to ask the audience, how do you refer to this? Because I'd rather use the term that you're not, that you're used to referring right. to it. That right. way I don't lose you. That way, I, that way we don't lose the message. I think that helps. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, you, you want to work within their framework and their mindset of the, of the language that they're familiar with. And if, if you're not saying the right words, literally, right. <laughs> then your message is not going to get across. Right, exactly. So. And that's just like in, in Spanish. We, we have colleagues that they mentioned that they've had uh, a building supers in the buildings where they live from Turkey, Serbia, uh, other countries in Eastern Europe. So I guess depending on the neighborhood, you might... It, if we're New Yorkers, we're like, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that like Greenpoint has like a lot of supers from X country, you know. So mm-hmm. like maybe maybe there should be like some training in in, in, right. in that language. Right. Are there any other um, sort of Spanglish words that you would put out there? I know I've, I've, I've yeah. heard you present on this before, and there's some interesting ones that I've heard. But I'm right, curious. right. So the word for pump uh, in Spanish is bomba. But typically, when when I talk uh, with uh, a Latin American Spanish speaker here in New York, they'll say pompa, la pompa, la oh. pompa, la pompa, la pompa. Like, la pompa. okay, la bomba, la pompa. Okay, got it, got it. Uh, boiler, they'll say boila, la boila. Uh, okay, and it's, and it's it's a, it's a feminine. It's a, it's it's it's, it's it's not it's not a it's not, not a male, male uh, <laughs> noun. It's a female, la boila. Which actually in Spanish it also it's also is caldera, but. Uh, so sometimes right, right. the Spanglish yeah. uh, uh, mixes up the 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 article for for the noun. I think the one that I'm thinking of that you mentioned, I've seen you mention before, is it's like lighting related, like LED driver or something like that, where there just doesn't, there maybe just even isn't a Spanish right. word for it. So right, there, there's just an element of certain words are just only in English, or right. at least for now. But yeah, yeah, I mean. Listen, a, a, a lot of technological advancements historically have been developed in this country, and so they've been named in English. And so, like, that, that, thanks for reminding me, the word driver. So when I was growing up in Colombia, like, we needed to install a driver of, of a software on my family's computer. Right. We spoke of the driver. We because there's no word in Spanish for that. And so bringing that to lighting, lighting technology, LED fixtures have a driver, which is the thing that converts AC to DC, right? And when working on like the translation for that, for that training into Spanish, we're struggling, like, how do we call a driver <laughs> in Spanish? And like even, like even stores, like online stores that sell these devices in Spanish, Driver, and so it's like all right. Driver. I just driver. I think it's driver. You know, it's it's good. And and I want to kind of also tie this back because I think it's related to training in a in a in a big way. But you know, it's not only about I think the site supers or operations and maintenance staff or construction workers staff that speak other languages, but the residents in these buildings in a lot of cases you know don't speak English. So. You know, how is that, I think, being addressed? And I, I don't know, Heather, if you have specific experience having to deal with that, um, whether it's translations or um, other means of kind of bridging that gap, that language gar- barrier gap. 
Yeah. Um, so far, it's limited right now. It's definitely an area that we're we're getting into a bit more. Okay. You know, um, the b- beginnings of this program really were focused on the building staff and also focused on the property managers. You know, and building that knowledge set and creating those connections there so that when the building staff went to their property manager and said, hey, I'm not just going to rebuild that pump again, it's time to replace it, but let's replace it with a VFD instead of an in-kind, then the property manager was like, you know what, you're right. All right, we're going to you know, go to bat. We're going to put in the more expensive system because you know, we've all done the training. I know it. You know it. That's the right step. So we've been mm. really focused on that those conversations and that educational set. Um, but we're starting, you know, slowly starting to work with the residents more. And, com- you know, language is something, you know, that has come up. In other aspects of our work, you know, when I used to do more auditing and we would go into apartments, you know, yeah. language was key. You yeah. know, just sending out the notices to make sure that people knew we were coming into the apartments. We had to go into their their homes, their private spaces. I had to open up their refrigerators and take a picture of the make and model. I had to go into their bathrooms, you know, very private spaces, <laughs> yeah. turn on their showers. And it really was key to, you know, have all of this information translated so they knew, you know, why we're coming in and and what we're doing in those spaces. I mean, sometimes I ended up having like tea and cookies and sat and talked to some Russian <laughs> women for a very long time because I couldn't get out. Um, but all around great experiences. Nice. So are you going around with maybe a super or someone at the building staff that can speak both languages and kind of act, act as that translator in that case? Yes. And we'll also um, kind of announce our arrival with written you know, announcements of oh, okay. it. So we'll have that hanging up in the mail room and in the elevators and on, you know, doors that are commonly used so that people can read these flyers a week in advance, know that we're coming out, you know, oh, expect somebody's going to be in your apartment for this many minutes. This is what they're testing and why. And then we can also have those, you know, written flyers with us that are fully translated um, until our staff and myself included are fluent in multiple languages so that we can do that on the fly. Right. Like I mean, that, that's, that's kind of what I'm thinking. Like, is there yeah. a world where, you know, to be effective trainers, at least in an area like New York City or, you know, I think urban environments are where you see a lot of uh, cultural and language diversity. Is it, is there, a, is there a train, is there an aspect of training the trainers to actually speak multiple languages? And I, it's a question that I think um, is only going to be more, relevant moving forward um, because I think our, you know, country and and particularly these regions are uh, certainly growing in in the diversity aspect. I don't know, do you you see a world where not only getting trained on how to train on certain pieces of equipment, but also doing it in two languages is something that is is highly advised or, or maybe is it more of a role for translators in this market to actually play a bigger role? We have experienced, you know, both. Um, you know, luckily, okay. you know, Luis as a team member here and a subject matter expert, and being able to speak multiple language, he can deliver that information directly. But we have yeah. also worked with a professional translator, and mm. they have zero HVAC background, but they <laughs> are an expert at translating, and it really like ups our level of training delivery. It feels like we're at a UN conference. Right, to have right. Someone, all the headsets and all the headsets, and have someone <laughs> you know speaking in in English and having it translated. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, we're trying to 
improve energy usage, make these buildings more sustainable, help you know educate the market on energy efficiency. So we want to make sure that language isn't a barrier to getting there. So is it mm. verbal translation, written translation? Um, that could be one of the barriers. So we're making sure all of the content that we're producing is bilingual, right. you know, either in checklists in our you know mobile apps to watch the videos. Everything is offered in two languages. Um, but there could be other barriers too, and that's why we're doing training classroom style, you know, verbal and written. We're doing leave behinds in different formats, you know, either short video clips that are filmed at pieces of equipment or the checklist, you know, how can we reach different learning styles too, you know, not just different languages. So there isn't this barrier of maybe I'm not a classroom learner or I'm not a book learner. Um, so yeah, language is going to play a key in that. And then we're all, I think, like engineers and consultants. You know, we're not teachers, too. Right, right? yeah, so that's the art of teaching is its own of, thing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So we have actually um, hired people who are experts in the art of teaching right. in the past <laughs> to help teach us how to teach other people. Nice, um, yeah, that's a really good connection, yeah. So there's a lot. Language is one of them, but there are a lot of things that we need to pay attention to to see, like, what are our goals with this training? And then how do we know if we're meeting our goals and how can we, like, reduce all the different barriers? Yeah. Now, I know in my experiences just learning things, one of the things that I've found to be really uh, effective at learning something is to actually learn by failure. <laughs> so <laughs> something goes wrong or you break something, you usually learn how to not do that or how to fix it. Does that happen in our industry and in, in buildings and systems and just training in general? Do you find that that's something that uh, makes it click <laughs> more easily for people? I think so, but at least in your construction, the times that I've seen it happen, it's been a a matter of chance that we saw a failure happen and that's how the learning happened. Mm, like as a commissioning Right, yeah, like agent. you're performing some testing and then a pressure relief valve pops mm. and water starts bleeding out of the system and then water doesn't stop. And like we're just like <laughs> scratching our heads that like, but what we did shouldn't have caused this. Like what and then, like, this is a very specific example. A PRV popped and it wouldn't stop bleeding water. The mm. PRV was inside the boiler and the, and, the, and the little handle, it got caught in wires and so it, would, it wouldn't come down. We had to open the boiler to actually see that. We, we, had an, like, we would have been just like, it's, it's still bleeding water. Like, why is this, <laughs> like, what did we do? Uh, so learning experience, yeah. Was it part of training? Kind of. I think building staff was there. But it was completely a matter of chance. Wow, yeah. We didn't plan that type of failure to happen to, to get the learning done. But you worked to help address the issue, to fix it, and hopefully it... Yeah, yeah, and, and in that case, it was a very easy fix. Just like, hey, get something to tie up these wires and like put them closer to like the, the wall of the boiler so that the PRV, whenever it pops, and it will pop, it's supposed to pop every now and then, you know, okay. depending on changes, it doesn't get caught again, and, and we have this because, right. um, I, I guess for more context, if a lot of water starts bleeding out of boiler, you're bringing fresh water into the boiler, fresh water that is cold going into a heat exchanger, you can, you can damage the system drastically. So. Okay. Something as simple as that you want to avoid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know one experience I've had on the resident side is sometimes you'll walk, and I've similar experiences. Heather walking into an apartment that's occupied for you know installing a monitor or whatever it might be, and you know there, there's the heating system or the cooling system is running and the window is open, 
And that's an education moment where you can say, look, you know, by having the window open, that heating and cooling that you're paying for is going right out the window. So, you know, and it might not be obvious to them. Like, look, they have their own job they and life they live and 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 I think for ourselves in the building industry what seems like an obvious thing is not obvious to others so yeah um, trying to be like empathetic or uh, understanding of their position as well is, is important yeah. and and like in, in, in many cases like th that example that you bring up makes me think of a, a lot of new tenants in these high-performance buildings a lot of them are coming from pre-war Overheated buildings, right. which buildings where they're just used to having the window open because uh, it's all, too hot. Because it's too hot, and yeah. so like that's just like their habit. They they might not even think about it anymore. It's like, all right, it's November, it's time to open the window, <laughs> right. otherwise yeah, I want to start cooking. Yeah, now it's crack <laughs> and, the window, and they don't really understand. Like, yeah. no, that actually it's uh, very unlikely to happen in 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 this building. Yeah, awesome. Uh, well, I think this has been a really, really interesting and good discussion. I'd like to get your thoughts here moving forward. What do you think O&M and training looks like in five years? Sure. Hopefully then we'll have made progress. I kind of think of us as the, the 101 level right now. Okay. You yeah. know, we're talking about basic building science. You know, how does a steam boiler operate? You know, what are ideal conditions, troubleshooting some things? And we're almost giving intros or teasers to more sophisticated systems, you know, giving previews of here are heat pumps, this is what's to come. But in five years, hopefully, you know, the built environment, our curriculum, you know, the demand for this has moved on and that we're kind of recapping and reflecting back on the 201, the 301 right. levels that we've gone because we're not just talking about... Um, you know, water hammer anymore and introducing mm. heat pumps, but we're getting into the weeds on like unique nuances of troubleshooting heat pumps to really optimize it and, you know, sneak out any energy savings here and there. We're really like amping it up to the next level. Right. Um, so hopefully this, you know, reflecting back on what we've done for this first five years is more that low hanging fruit and opening everyone's eyes and starting the conversation around it. And hopefully it's just really like a couple, you know, really leveling it up two or three notches up to over the next five years. Hopefully everybody's dialing in. And I think because of the market conditions, there's going to be this pressure and requirement or financial penalty to look at it with that, you know, really refined or that magnifying glass to really look at it closely. So hopefully the training is reflecting that and the conversations right. are continuing to amp up and deliver information at that next level and are on track with those newer technologies too. And maybe we're going to be integrating in, in a couple of years, we'll be talking more about batteries and how to optimize this and that. So right, I think, right. you know, it's going to be this balance of talking a bit ahead on what's coming and then matching what the industry needs right now. The other thing I really hope when we look back over five years is in some cases, when I look back at these five years, my clients that we're working with and where we're able to do these O&M training programs mm -hmm. are the folks that are a bit more forward thinking and like, yep. oh, this is important. Yep. I, I don't have someone on staff that coordinates this, so we're making room in our budgets. You know, We don't have a training program, but I hear you, see you, believe in it, let's find a way to make it happen. Hopefully there's a room for it in building operations. It really changes the culture and the approach to training. So it's 
integrated and it's not um, as much of a hard sell, but it's part mm. of regular building operations right. and maintenance is that everyone has onboarding schedules and trainings and refresher trainings that it's not this new thing. Right, and maybe not, to, to paraphrase, not as reactionary and maybe more proactive and dealing with issues and complaints and things like that, you know, how, right. to, how to handle mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Luis, five years from now? Yes. See, uh, on a similar note to what uh, Heather was mentioning, is, uh, but from the con- new construction side of things, uh, it'd be nice to see, I guess, five years from now, hopefully sooner, that th- there's more attention paid, there's more emphasis on the training for the staff of a new construction building, but not just like the building super and like the maintenance staff, but also the property managers, that, like the, the the ones who tend to be also the decision makers uh, for buildings, because uh, again, newer buildings, newer systems, more complex technology, and uh, like they, they need to understand how things uh, work, how they're supposed to work, so that uh, they can identify when something is an issue and w- when it's not. Um, so, I mean, lead when when people when somebody does a building and they take it through lead and they have to do I believe it's fundamental uh, commissioning I think training is one of the requirements mm-hmm. but that's just if they're doing if they're doing lead if they're not doing lead they don't have that quote unquote motivation to to pay that much emphasis on training so I don't know maybe it's an energy code thing that the 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 section C four oh eight that talks about commissioning also adds a new requirement for like you need to have a X type of record for the staff training, um, or maybe uh, I mean uh, uh, our energy code is really a, has really advanced very close to passive house uh, near passive house standards. So it definitely makes sense that s- uh, training gets closer to that front and center position of a of a new building uh, development. Nice, nice. Raise the baseline a bit, and <laughs> if codes are getting more stringent. From a design perspective, they, yeah. there should be uh, equal attention paid to operation. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. All right, well, thank you very much for being on. I think this was a great discussion. And um, yeah, hopefully uh, we see more success stories of operation and maintenance moving on and moving forward. So thank you for being on. Right on. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks, Thanks Heather. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. Buildings and Beyond is produced by Stephen Winter Associates. We make buildings better. To learn more, visit swinter.com. Special thanks to Heather and Luis for joining our discussion today, and to Alex Mirable and Trisha Carr from the production team. Thanks for listening.